Although I've always wanted to uh, have the congregation stand and uh, sit down while I preach, I'm not going to do that. That's not why these chairs are here. Uh, So um, uh, relax. For about 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus uh, appeared to his disciples on a variety of occasions, instructed them on the mission that he had intended uh, for them to do. And then on the day that he ascended into heaven, um, he, uh, he made this statement, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And ten days after the 40 days, uh, after Jesus ascended, um, the Holy Spirit came. And uh, so it was 50 days after Easter. Penta means 50, and so Pentecost uh, comes uh, from that. The scriptures record that on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, Bible scholars and church historians uh, agree pretty much that the day of Pentecost was the day in which the church was officially launched. And so it's an important day. And as a result of that, uh, we decided that to suspend our current series on the essential Jesus, uh, to give attention to this foundational event in the life of the church. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. If you have your Bibles or have them on your devices, I would encourage you to take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look together at verses uh, 17 through 20. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we give attention to your word and particularly this important event that has challenged the church down through the years to keep on target with what you have in mind for us and and inviting the Holy Spirit to be a part of who we are. We pray that you will help us today to understand the importance of what we will be looking at and that we will be open, Holy Spirit, to all that you want to say to us today. Because you have come to be our teacher and to lead us into truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In my last year of college, I had bought a car that, with my dad's help, I was able to keep on on the road until my first job allowed me to purchase a new vehicle. One day I mentioned to Dad that the car seemed to lack power and and there were times when it, it didn't take the gas properly. Dad told me that he thought the fuel pump was likely going and that I should get it looked at. Well, I was a college student, and I had places to go, a girlfriend to see, and a life to live. Fuel pumps could wait. Well, late one afternoon during rush hour, I was making my way home from somewhere. I mean, who knows where I was a college student. Uh, When the car started acting up, The same symptoms began to show loss of power and a seeming lack of gas making it to the engine. I made a quick check of the gas gauge and it registered just under a quarter of a tank and so I knew I had lots of gas. (laughs) 
A feeling of panic, however, started to come over me because I had been in downtown Hamilton and we lived on the mountain. That's Hamiltonian talk for that ridge of the Niagara Escarpment that kind of separates the upper and lower parts of the city. I had chosen a narrow, winding, two-lane road, a popular route at this time of the day, to come home to kind of avoid, to try to avoid traffic. Did I mention it was rush hour? Well, the car refused to accelerate. I began pumping the gas pedal furiously, but there was no response. With a final sputter, the engine died and the car rolled to a stop. There was no shoulder to pull off on, so I sat there and the traffic began to pile up behind me. My father's warning echoed through my head, and I was stuck with hundreds of commuters would, and hundreds of commuters would arrive home late to cold suppers and frustrated families. It's not a good feeling to be in the midst of rush hour traffic and lose power, especially when your powerlessness is a result of your own lack of responsibility. But many of us plow through life in a similar way, convinced that we can make it, ignoring the signs that we have sucked up all our energy. We pump the gas pedal of our lives more furiously to try to keep going. The result is that we dry up emotionally, physically, and more importantly, spiritually. In our scripture lesson today, the Apostle Paul gives an urgent warning. Don't act thoughtlessly. But understand what the Lord wants you to do. The warning against acting thoughtlessly carries with it the meaning of something done accurately, precisely, or given close attention. When taken in its literal sense, the warning of the apostle is to watch your step or look closely at how you walk. When my youngest brother was in elementary school, he decided one day on his way to school to see how far he could walk with his eyes closed. He ended up running smack dab into a mailbox strapped to a streetlight post, breaking off his two front teeth. I mean, how dumb was that? Do you think that we have ever let him forget this move? Not on your life. He is now over 60, 60 years of age, and this misadventure keeps coming up at family gatherings. Oh, the strange way in which families show love to one another. <laughs> Paul is not ruling out the probability that we will make misguided moves as people who want to do God's will. We are human. We will make unwise decisions. If this were not the case, there would be no need for his warning. What he is saying to us is to take into account how we are wired, the inclination that we have to pull dumb stunts with our lives that lead us into painful mishaps and to steer ourselves in a different direction. The call to live in the full knowledge of what the Lord wants you to do is not an appeal for theoretical knowledge. It is a call for moral decisiveness and practical skill development in decision-making that targets life as God intends and actively promotes His will in our lives. Now often, whenever God's will is mentioned, we think in terms of major life decisions, such as what university to attend or what vocation to pursue or who to marry or how to invest our finances. Although these decisions point these decision points are a legitimate time to ask God to reveal His will to us, the will of God for our lives involves much more than periodic interventions. 
God's will is to be lived out in our everyday experiences, not just at those special times when we need divine guidance. The implication from what the Apostle is saying is that God's will is knowable on a daily basis. It is not that complicated. We are able to understand how to direct our lives according to God's purposes for us. It is foolishness that keeps us from understanding what God would have us to do to honor Him with our lives. Now Paul has already noted some of these God-honoring choices in the verses previous to the ones I am considering with you today. And so I would encourage you to look at the beginning verses of uh, Ephesians 5 and, and on. Perhaps we wouldn't have so much difficulty in determining God's will for major decisions if we were more accustomed to consistently affirming His will in our lives on a daily basis. And when it comes to experiencing this constant affirmation, the Apostle goes on to give a powerful directive that opens up, opens up to us the endless possibilities of walking with God in the way that He intends for us to walk. He writes, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now many English versions of the Apostle's statements hide the important structural component to how Paul has written his directive here. Most translations separate these verses into several sentences with a, with a variety of commands. For instance, the New International Version has five sentences with six commands. What is lost in translation is the fact that verses 18 to 20 are part of one sentence as originally written by the Apostle Paul. Also, there are only two commands. Don't be drunk and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The rest of the verb forms are supporting participles, singing, making music, giving thanks. Essentially, Paul is commanding everyone who is serious about living as the Lord wants in their everyday lives to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He then continues on to explain what that looks like in the life of a believer. The command to be filled with the Spirit is unmatched by any other biblical writer and has been identified as the ultimate imperative of Paul's writings. For this reason, it is important to understand what Paul is saying and why he gives this command. Now, the Scriptures clearly state that when we believe on Jesus as the one who forgives us of our sin, a remarkable transformation occurs in our lives. We are changed. We are made new from the inside out. In a conversation that Jesus had with the Jewish religious leader Nicodemus, he referred to this change as being born again or born from above. And Jesus attributed this new birth to the work of the Holy Spirit, who then takes up residence within us. So the question is, If the Spirit is given to a believer at the time the new birth occurs, and is indeed the agent of this new birth, what does Paul mean when he commands us to be filled with the Spirit? Well, a clue to what Paul has in mind is given through the way he introduces the imperative. 
Remember, there are just two imperatives here. The first has to do with drunkenness. Don't get drunk, Paul states. Now, I will admit that contrasting drunkenness with the filling of the Spirit has always been a bit of a puzzle to me. And as I read the explanations of various authors on why the Apostle used this description, I conclude that I am not alone in my quandary. So let me give you my best shot at what I think Paul is getting at here. One day, early in my ministry journey, a man desperately drunk stumbled onto our church property. As a church, we began to minister God's love and grace to him. We had a vacant house that the church had purchased for future expansion. We invited him to live there. We discovered that he had a university degree in journalism and had skills in printing. We gave him a job in our publication department. He showed signs of making good progress. Then one Saturday evening, as I was trying to wrap up my sermon preparation, back in those days, I preached two different sermons every Sunday. I received a phone call from him. He was drunk. I went over to the house and found him crawling around on his hands and knees, not knowing which way was up. My heart broke for him. I cleaned him up, got him into bed, poured the bottle of hard liquor from which he was drinking down the drain, made sure that he was comfortable, and then left. Here he was, a man in his early 40s, educated, creative, capable, a really nice guy, totally out of control because of the influence of alcohol. I think what Paul is issuing a warning to us here is by using the example of the detrimental effects of too much booze, he wants us to understand what, the, what it means to be controlled and filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is saying that we as people were created for relationship with God and any practice that diminishes our awareness of God interferes with the purpose He has for our lives and dulls our ability to respond to Him must be a Eliminated. Now certainly alcohol and drug abuse can lead to a life out of control and away from God. But there are all kinds of things that we allow to control our lives that are contrary to God's will for us. Think about the way we are influenced by materialism or fashion or ath athletics or diet or technology or beauty aids. Whenever we fall under the addictive influence of anything that we just must have, we are in danger of losing out in our relationship with God. So don't fill up your life with stuff that will dull your awareness of God's presence in your lives. Rather, fill your life with the Spirit of God. Turn your life over to the Holy Spirit and invite Him to be the controlling personality in your life, motivating and directing you according to the good intentions of God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to come under the influence of the fullness of God's power unleashed in our lives to shape us for His glory. To return to my initial story, the Holy Spirit acts like a fuel pump to bring the dynamic of God into our everyday experience as the driving force. For this reason, then, the Holy Spirit is to be the dominating influence in our lives, and the command to be filled with the Spirit is the ultimate imperative. Well, how does the filling of the Spirit take place in our lives? This may be the question that some of you are asking right now. 
Since Paul is giving a command here, it can be concluded that the filling does not happen automatically. There is a human element involved. In this matter, I think Jesus gives us some instruction. In a teaching session on prayer that Luke records in his gospel, Jesus makes this declaration. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asked for a fish, would inst- uh, ask for a fish, will instead uh, of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the whole, uh, Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? For the Spirit of God, who is already within us as believers, to become the controlling influence in our lives, requires us to ask. Jesus indicated that God is not hesitant in empowering our lives by His Holy Spirit, but will not do so without our invitation. There must be a deliberate ask on our part for the Spirit to fill us. The Apostle James, I think, helps us out a little bit in this asking component in our lives when he wrote, You do not have because you do not ask God. Emphasizing that God is willing to provide His Spirit in fullness and power, but will only do so at your request. James follows up this instruction on asking with this pointed observation. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures, your own pleasures. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is given to empower us to live out God's will for our lives, not to draw attention to ourselves. To receive the fullness of the Spirit means that we are eagerly intent on following Jesus' example of receiving the Spirit in order to serve, not to be served. The filling of the Spirit is not intended to be viewed as an elitist position that makes some more spiritual than others. It is for every Christ follower to enjoy and to experience. Which leads to a second component to experiencing the fullness of the Spirit. Jesus instructs us to seek it. We must have a desire to be filled with the Spirit. This calls for serious contemplation. A.W. Tozer has observed, there's a spiritual loneliness, an inner aloneness, an inner place where God brings the seeker. The loneliness of human spirit typically comes when we reach the end of ourselves and conclude that the Christian life is not just hard, it is just downright impossible. We hit a critical point in our spiritual well-being that defeats our resolve. And when we arrive at this realization, we become more keen to the role of the Holy Spirit controlling and leading us in our life's pursuits. Jesus brings about freedom from sin in our lives from a positional standpoint. We are declared forgiven and released from all condemnation. The Spirit works this freedom out in our lives in practice. He empowers us to rise above our sinful natures, to actually do the right we want to do and say no to those things that are wrong. He satisfies the longing of our hearts to live in right relationship with God with ourselves, with one another. 
And so Jesus wraps up his instruction on receiving the fullness of the Spirit with the instruction to knock. Now, knocking carries with it the desire to be invited in, of looking for the door to be opened, the door to the fullness of the Spirit to be opened to us. There's a sense of anticipation, the presence of expectant hope, the faith to accept that God is both willing and able to answer our knocking, our call. We approach God with the firm belief that He will welcome us with open arms and invite us into the positive space of living out His good intentions. And so we come to Him with the firm resolve to receive what no longer needs to remain a closed door to us. The fullness of the Spirit is realized in our lives when we ask, when we seek, when we receive the Spirit's controlling influence as God's gracious gift to us. Now the verb tense that the Apostle Paul and Jesus use points to a continuous action on our part in order for the fullness of of the Spirit to be an ongoing reality in our lives. We are to keep on being filled, which leads to a commitment to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on receiving. The command to be filled with the Spirit is not a one-time imperative. It is the ultimate imperative that must be continuously followed for the Christian life to become more than a constant struggle of trying to be what we are naturally not. So what are some of the practical outcomes of being filled with the Spirit? Well, interestingly... Paul goes on to speak of the filling of the Spirit in the context of church. The whole church is to be filled with the Spirit and transformed by His presence in our times of gathering. When we meet together, we are to be more intent in engaging with the wonder of being in the presence of a holy God than in being personally pampered. A primary way in which this shows up is in singing. Of the three supporting participles attached to being filled with the Spirit, two specifically refer to song. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Notice the community components attached to this instructive piece on how singing is to inform our worship experience. Singing songs among yourselves. Making music in your hearts, plural, to the Lord. Singing is not just a vertical act, but also a horizontal one. Of course, we do sing to God, but we also sing for one another. God is the object of our worship, but our singing is also a means of mutual encouragement. In our singing, we all have equal opportunity to proclaim truth. When we open our mouths to sing, we all take on the role of being agents of the Holy Spirit, bringing the presence and words of God into our midst in all of its fullness. This means that there is both the expression of praise to God and an instructional piece to one another in singing. Perhaps the way verse 19 is translated in the New International Version helps us in our understanding. Here we are instructed to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing is an act of community where we proclaim the message of the gospel of grace as being alive and well among us. 
We are captivated by the word of truth, and it is reflected in the words we sing. In a similar passage to the one we are considering from Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Colossians. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. This means that words are not to be merely sung, but are to inform and shape us into a community that reflects our belief that we belong to God and to one another. When we sing, we are declaring to one another that God is worthy of our praise and that we are letting the peace of Christ keep us in tune with one another. Well, to help us gain a better understanding of how our singing can be instructive to us, I have asked one of our musicians, may I say one of our musician instructors, because that's what our musicians do for us, to join me in conversation about her journey into the heart of God through music. Would you welcome Michelle Lorimer to the platform with me? Well, Michelle, thank you for your willingness to uh, join with me here. Yeah, these, these are new. These kind of spring-loaded. We better make sure we, we don't get ejected off these things or, or, or something. Um, you're a songwriter. You've written some songs, actually, that we as a congregation have, have sung on occasions. I've been speaking about how our singing is to be a time when we agree to instruct one another through through our music. How have you found a song, and perhaps notably the, the songs that, that you have written, to be instructive to you on your spiritual worship? Um, so I think about that question. Um, it makes me think that um, sometimes, you know, when we, something about God is revealed to us in our head, we can apprehend that truth. And sometimes I do that. I, I, something's been revealed about God, and I get it with my head. But um, that's not, that doesn't mean that my heart responds to that truth and surrender. So I think that God gives songs to help our hearts respond to truth and to surrender to that truth, where our head, you know, we, we take it in, and that's important. We comprehend it. But for our heart to surrender sometimes, the softness through which a song that a song brings moves our heart in the direction of surrendering to that truth where change can happen. Yeah. So I have felt that. And I feel also that, um, you know, if when something about God is revealed, a song is often our response. And so songs for me, in terms of completing the instruction, it, are a response. It's the response that my heart gives that says, Lord, I understand, or I'm grabbing onto that, or I'm holding on to the truth. Um, so, yeah, it's a response in the instruction piece. Okay, so there's a there's kind of a connect between the the, the head and the heart, and yeah. the, you know the heart kind of reflects our our whole being. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it, and scripture is symbolic of mm -hmm. of that. And uh, yeah, I you know I think I I heard in between your words, and, and kind of like me, and maybe like a, a many of us, the, mm -hmm. the the music really moves our our hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, I find sometimes it, it moves my, my heart before it moves my, my head, yeah. but, but there's, yeah. there's that, that response within us mm -hmm. that, uh, that causes us to 
be instructed mm-hmm. in, in how we... Uh, so, so what do you see the role of singing mm-hmm. being uh, in, our times of, in, in our times of worship? Mm-hmm. I think when we gather corporately um, and we come and to this discipline of singing together, you know, uh, one thing that it does for us is it moves us beyond self. You know, we each come into this building with our own personal, private kingdoms and issues and trials and walks with God. But when we surrender through the many corporate songs that we sing, we are, um, it's an act of unity. It's an act where all of us are tapping into our claiming um, through faith and in the act of entering in the words of something greater. And, and those words are pointing us to God. They're pointing us to Christ. Um, they're telling the stories of faith of people that have gone way before us and some that are in our midst. They are um, resonating truths that people in our congregation who we may know or not know are, have, have used, and, and it's bringing them closer to God. So by participating, you know, we're, we're losing ourselves in a way and apprehending God as a collective, as a corporate body. Um, the other thing I think it does is it... it um, we realize that, you know, I know that everyone has their favorite songs or preferences of songs and all of that stuff. But as we enter in together, it's an act of submitting to each other because a song that does nothing for you, let's say, might be moving someone else closer to Jesus. Mm. Therefore, it's worth singing that song. It's mm. worth um, putting ourselves in that place so that we can also um, release the Lord to work in other people's lives. And conversely, there might be a song for whatever reason that is speaking to us. Um, so the collective thing of that is a way of submitting to each other, too, I feel. Yeah. It's interesting. If I were to have continued on in Ephesians, um, the, the, after uh, verse 20, uh, there's verse 21, which says submitting to one another uh, out of reverence for Christ. Um, we often connect that into uh, the, the instruction on, on marriage and households that comes after it. But, but it's, 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 it's really intimately connected to what we were just talking about, the feeling of the Spirit, the singing, and, and, and reflecting God in, in, our, in our songs. Um, so you've written a song that you're going to present uh, to us. Uh, talk to us about how this uh, song came together. What is it that you would want us as a church community to learn and reinforce to each other as you lead us in uh, singing the song? Sure. So uh, the song that I'm going to share with you um, is one that God gave me in response to a fresh realization. And that happened when I was reading several uh, passages in the Psalms, and it dawned on me for the first time ever, I think really solidly and significantly, that God had ordained praise from all his creatures, and I was one of them. And he had ordained praise from my lips. Um, And that if I would just open my mouth, and receive from him, he would fill me with himself. He would satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. And um, he would give me um, a testimony. And it came out in the form of song for me. But he would give me a testimony, something to fill others with. So I'll just share with you some of the scriptures I was reading. Psalm 81. Uh, Sing for joy to God, our strength. Begin the music, it says. And later on, I am, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Psalm 46, uh, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. And Psalm 24, such is the generation of those who seek his face. They will worship. They will seek his face. They will invite in the king of glory. Um, 
And so all of those, those, those revelations through scripture caused me to respond um, uh, in the song. And I, the other thing I'll just share with you is that it's, it's maybe one of the first songs that God ever gave me. Mm. This expression of song that God gave me, it's probably 18 years old. And I've never shared it publicly before. It's always just been a song between God and me, but it's sweet and dear to my heart because it's one of the first ones he gave me. Um, and then so to prepare for this, I shared it with some of our worship leaders, and uh, Susanna agreed to sing it along with me. Um, and as she did that, um, God gave her words and of response within the song, which she's going to add in and sing as well. And for me, it, it just was a, a manifestation of what we're talking about here that you know, um, it doesn't really matter how old or how dusty or how whatever the word of God might seem in our lives. When we, by faith, share and re- not regurgitate, but re- repeat and, and bring those back in corporate worship, it, it causes fresh meaning and it causes fresh faith. And for me, it did that when I heard Susanna just add to it. It revived for me personally what God had been doing privately uh, for, you know, 18 years now, this song. So, Super. Well, thank you, Michelle, and uh, please uh, minister to us in song. Okay. I'm going to just sing the first verse in chorus, and then Susanna is going to join me on the second time round.
the Holy Spirit has been given to us to keep us as a church community from being thoughtless in knowing what the Lord intends for us. Furthermore, he comes to us with the power and authority of Jesus to actually empower us to fulfill our mission. However, we can limit his empowering by failing to invite him into our personal and corporate environments. He is ready to come to us in invigorating, enlightening presence, but we must position ourselves in a receptive stance. A primary thought leader in knowing the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our worship, as we've already seen, is singing. And so as we conclude our time of worship here this morning, let us speak to one another through singing as the worship team leads us. Would you stand with us?
welcome you. Move among us.
Richard Foster has written this compelling statement. In our day, heaven and earth are on tiptoe, waiting for the emerging of a spirit-led, spirit-intoxicated, spirit-empowered people. Such people will not emerge until there is among us a deep, more profound experience of Emmanuel of the Spirit, God with us, a knowledge that in the power of the Spirit, Jesus has come to guide his people himself, an experience of his leading that is as definite and as immediate as the Old Testament cloud by day and fire by night. We can be that people. We can know the dynamic of the power of God activating our capacity to flourish as a church community intent on doing what God has intended for us to do. So let's not be bashful about asking. And so as I was reflecting on and writing my text this week, a thought came to me. Instead of giving opportunity for our prayer team to be in prayer here with you for particular needs, I'd, invite, I'd like to invite those of you who would like to, to just join at the front here. We're going to have a soft close. If you have to go and pick up your kids or you have other commitments, that's fine. But any who would like to come and just stand here and just engage in a time of asking and seeking and knocking that the Holy Spirit would come and fill us as a church community so that we can do the work that God intends for us to do. And so after I pronounce the benediction and the sending, if you want to just come and join us here, we'll just spend a few moments praying together as you feel inclined and led. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the constant companionship of the Holy Spirit go with you all in the name of Jesus.